Before we turn back to Joshua chapter 8, let us again pray to God and ask our God for his help. Lord, we seek your face humbly again at this hour. We do not come to you lightly knowing that you are the all-powerful and all-righteous God. But we confess our need, our need, Lord, of you, our need to hear from you. Lord, we know, as your word says, that your word is a light, a feet, a lamp for a path. So we ask, Lord God, that as we come to Joshua today, that you would guide us, that you would show us the route we are to take. And we pray, Lord, that big prayer once again, that if there are some who do not know Christ, we pray that you would show them the way to, to our Lord, that you would take them by grace to that joyous salvation, that they would taste and see that the Lord is good, even at this hour. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I suppose it's probably fair to say that uh, things just now are uh, slightly uh, fractured at uh, St. Peter's uh, Free Church, aren't they? Uh, slightly fractured with illness, with people having to self-isolate, with some people on holiday and then coming back on holiday, some visitors to the congregation. It's fair to say that attendance has not been sort of uniform uh, for this sermon series in the book of Joshua cannot be helped is the way that it is. So I think it is worth us starting out this morning just reminding ourselves just for a second how it is that you and I as Christians how we are to interpret and understand this book. How we are supposed to understand today the book of Joshua. So what's the obvious thing to say? There is an obvious thing to say, isn't there? That is you and I, as we study this bloody and violent book, obvious thing to say is that we are not, of course, uh, to follow suit. That unlike uh, some in previous generations, let's be frank about it, and also unlike some other major world religions today, the God of the Bible, our God, does not want us to, to seek to try and advance the cause of Christ by force. That's the obvious thing to say, is it not? But then, where does that leave us? Okay, I mean, how are you and I supposed to interpret this uh, Old Testament book? Well, I think we know the answer, do we? Do we? Yes, there are moral lessons to be taken from the book of Joshua. That's fine, that's true. But primarily, are we not supposed to see in this book spiritual truths? Is that not how we are to interpret the book of Joshua today? What are the weapons that we are to carry? We, we know that they're spiritual weapons, aren't they? Uh, the belt of truth and, and, and the shield of faith. and the, Yeah, we can go on, can you? The sword of faith and so forth. Who are our enemies right now, just now in Scotland, in Dundee? Not in a sense, enemies of flesh and blood. What has happened to us? We have been taken across the Jordan by the Lord Jesus Christ. That we just now, we inhabit the promised land of the salvation of God. And what's the task right now? What is the focus to be? We are to look to follow the greater Joshua. As we do what? As we fight, as we battle against spiritual foes. 
Now, I think all of that is true of the book of Joshua, generally speaking. But I think today what we can do is narrow it down, take the focus down for Joshua chapter 8. You see, what I think we'll see, friends, today in this chapter, in this great victory over AI, what I think we'll see are lessons about besetting sin. So this morning, hear this, we will learn how we can, in the strength and the power of our God, how we can defeat an enemy that's defeated us before. How we can defeat a very awkward enemy. We'll see here how we can defeat indwelling, besetting, habitual sin. So, can I make the plea that I make every week? And can I ask you to make sure you've got the Bible open in front of you? Let's have scripture in front of us, on a phone, or maybe by memory, or certainly a copy of scripture. And let's think first of all about the goodness of God that we see here, the goodness of our God. Okay, now as any um, author um, or novelist would affirm, any book that is worth its salt, any novel that's worth its salt, really probably should have quite a gripping opening line, shouldn't it? A really exciting, arresting opening. I'm pretty sure as I say that to you, there are some first lines that have already lodged in your brain from books you've read. What about Dickens? Some of you would go straight there to, it was the best of times. So, right, the worst of times. Or some of us love Orwell, do we? What was that? It was a bright day in uh, April when the clock struck 13. And there's a cracking opening line, isn't it? Well, here's my personal favorite. I actually can't remember the book, but I think the author was Ian M. Banks. How's this for an opening line of a book? He starts it off like this. Uh, it all happened on the day my grandmother exploded. <laughs> there's, that's got our attention, hasn't it? There's a, a cracking opening uh, line. Well, there's a lot for us to get our teeth into in the book of Joshua. But to start it, I would actually ask you to draw your attention to the opening section of this chapter. So I will have a much-needed gulp of water. And can I ask you to, to skim read verse 1 and verse 2 very quickly and look for the goodness of God? Now, I've said what? The goodness of God, the grace of God. What, what do you think? As you scan verse 1 and 2, what do you think stands out? You, you could probably say back to me what stands out is the difference between this account in AI and what happened at Jericho. Do we remember what happened to Jericho? Everything had to be, do you remember? Everything killed, everything burnt. The only thing taken away was the loot. Do we remember? It had to be taken away at the treasury of God. Did you all notice how it's not like that at AI? Do you notice it? Look at it in verse 2. Here, God permits the people of God to take the livestock. Isn't that, come on! Isn't that lovely? What did we see in chapter 5? The manna had stopped. As the people of God are coming in to the promised land. And the people of God, look, let's face it, basic needs. The people need to eat. And you see our almighty God, our gracious God, he even condescends to meet that basic need of his people. Isn't that good? Isn't that the goodness of God? It's not what I'm talking about, though. Look at the first line. Look at the first line, opening line. What does God say here to Joshua? He says, do not fear do not be dismayed. 
I, I don't know, maybe, maybe we've got a problem here. Maybe there's a problem of, of, of a over-familiarity, do you think? You see those words there, do not fear. I think I'm right in saying, although I haven't counted them, that that is the most common command in all of the Bible. Some people like to say that it's to sing or to praise God. I don't think so. I think do not fear is the, it's not a thought, is the most common command in all of the Bible. And so do you see the problem? Like we might come to this, skim over it, and we might not see how beautiful this occurrence of it is here. Do not fear God's sin. But you, most of you, so look around, were present in the room last week. You remember the context. Well, what's just happened? I mean, Israel has sinned against God. Remember Achan? Remember the sin? Israel's sinned and Israel's been defeated. And I think we can infer from that that Joshua, as the leader of the people, was dismayed by that whole episode. You know, just horrified by the, the way the people have sinned, how they've sinned, how they've been defeated. And now do you see how beautiful this is? What happens? In that situation, God appears. And what does God remind Joshua about? Comes to Joshua and says, because Achan was killed, because atonement has been made, because there was contrition and repentance, he reminds Joshua that sin, Joshua, is gone. That sin is clean away. He comes, God comes and says, don't fear, do not be dismayed, move on, move out. And maybe here this morning at St. Peter's Free Church, that is a word that some of us need to hear as Christians, is it? I mean, look at us. I don't think it's too harsh to say, probably of all of us, that the reality is that we, when we come to St. Peter's, when we come to church, we put on a bit of a facade. Is that right? That's fair to say, isn't it? You know, imagine a stranger looking at us. You know what a stranger would think? He looks around and thinks, this is the people that have it all together. <laughs> Wouldn't it? You know, people well-dressed. We smile behind our masks to each other, right? We, we, we're polite. We're nice to each other. A stranger would look on and think, we, we, these people, we've all got this together. And actually, what is the reality? Many of us as Christians have come to church today and are utterly dismayed about our sin of the past week. And we come in here and in a way we're in pieces. And we think about the way that we have acted and the things that we have said and done, the things that we have thought about people and what happens. We get to come into the church and we get to come to God. And what do we hear? Surely he says to us, do not be dismayed. God reminds us in the gospel that our sin too, your sin, is forgiven. That sin is gone. Your sin, Christian friend, it is clean, wiped away. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Do you not agree? This Joshua 8, one fantastic opening line. So we see the goodness of God here. Second of all, we see the toil for triumph. The toil for triumph. Now, I think it's really quite an interesting thing to consider the uh, practices of top-level sportsmen 
and top-level sportswomen. Really interesting uh, thing to consider how they behave. Let's take footballers as uh, the sort of obvious example. Footballers. So I would have thought that the day after a game, a day after a victory as a footballer, you would get the day off. Wouldn't you think so? The day after, if you've won 3-0, you've beaten Dundee United 3-0, uh, the day before, you would probably get a day off the next day. That's what I would have thought. Apparently, that is not always the case. So a day after the game, even if you've won, apparently most teams, what they'll do is they'll come into training complex. What they'll do is they'll have a light gym session. And then what they'll do, almost always, is have this very thorough debrief, a debriefing about the previous night's victory. Can you picture that? Right, you can, can't you? You know, the team sitting about, the technical staff will show them videos, go through the tactics, and they will give them a summary, a summary of the victory that has been won. Now, maybe... Maybe that's the sort of thing that we need here this morning. Summary of the victory. Because as a look around, everybody probably got, did we, in the reading, that this victory over AI was won by an ambush. We all got that, right? We all got that. The kids, we got it, it was by an ambush. We got it. Notice I included myself with you, us kids. Why I did that? I'm feeling young. Is that it? But we understood that it was by ambush. But did we get the detail? I mean, will you think about it just with me for a second? It's fair to say that Joshua pulls off a pretty sneaky move. <laughs> is it? That's true, isn't it? Do you see what he does? What Joshua does, now let's follow the steps, okay? What he does is he organizes a group of warriors to go to the west of the city. Do we pick, do we pick up on that? That they're to go up at night and hide. Okay, now what does Joshua do? So he and the rest of the people, they go to the north, and they camp at the north. So everyone's got the picture, people hiding, the west, warriors in the west, you've got AI in the middle, the rest of the people up in the north. Now, next morning, that's when it all kicks off, isn't it? So next morning, Joshua and the big group of people, they advance on AI in full view of the king of AI. Now, what does he do, the king? It's not in the text. I love to think that he's laughing and rubbing his hands with glee. And here they come again. You know, I've defeated them once before. I'm going to defeat them again. What does the king do? Do we get it? When the people of Israel begin the ruse, when they turn to run, the king, his army, and I wonder if you got this, the king, his army, and the army of nearby Bethel, they all join together and they chase after the people of God. Now, if you were an onlooker, what would you think? If you're an onlooker, at this point you think, oh, they're finished. The people of Israel, they are destroyed. But you and I know much better than that. What does Joshua do at this point? He signals to those guys, those warriors in the West. What do they do? They enter AI, they burn it to the ground, and then they chase after the enemy from behind. They rout them, they kill them, they destroy the enemy. Isn't it marvelous? Isn't it clever? Isn't it ingenious? Now maybe, maybe, maybe not, but maybe that summary helps us. If it does, why is it necessary? Are you not with me when I say to you, this is the most incredibly complicated chapter of Scripture. Isn't it complex? Isn't it? 
I mean, this is the, the most detailed an account of a preparation of a battle in all of the book of Joshua. Didn't it blow your mind when Alistair came up to read it all? Try to get your head right. So many preparations that needed to be made here. Like so much strategy goes into this. Did you notice all? So many orders are issued. So many orders are carried out. You're with me when I say so much effort goes into this victory. And surely there is, Christian friend, an important spiritual lesson for us in that. Would you agree with me if I, on this, say this to you, that one of our greatest mistakes as Christians in the Christian walk, is how we underestimate indwelling sin. One of our greatest mistakes. Now, you could say, you could think I'm saying that we underestimate the severity and how offensive it is to God. And of course, that is correct. But I actually mean the mistake of underestimating just what it takes to kill, to mortify indwelling, besetting sin. Don't we underestimate it? Is it fair to say perhaps that the devil has us tricked? We're tricked into thinking that actually just as we grow older, these sins will just somehow fall away from us. (laughs) No effort needed. We'll just get a bit older and these sins that we've been clinging on to for a while, they'll just fall away naturally. The evil one perhaps has us tricked into thinking that that our indwelling sin, our besetting sin is just, and it's an easy victory. This is going to be easy to destroy. And should we not then learn from the people of God? I mean, surely you see it. AI was nothing. Did you pick up on that? I mean, AI is nothing. It's just, it's not even a city of sorts. It's just an outpost. It's just a few thousand men. That's all it is. And despite its seeming insignificance, the people of God make great preparations for war. I say it again. The people of God make great preparations for war. Is that not what we need to do this week? You and I, as we fight our indwelling sin, do we not need to start thinking strategically about the battlefield, the war ahead? Do we not need to give great thought to the preparations you need to make, I need to make to fight sin? What do we see here? We see that even an apparently insignificant foe takes great effort for the people of God to defeat. So we see the goodness of God, don't we? We see also the toil for triumph. Third thing, though, we see is the strength for success. (coughs) Excuse me, the strength for success. Now, most seriously, I realize this, that as this morning I stand up, and I've thought about this a lot this week, as you can imagine. As I stand up in front of you just now, and I talk about indwelling sin, besetting sin, this enemy, this foe that we're to fight in the Christian life, I am acutely aware that some of us in the room who are are at our wit's end, that there are some of us in the life of the church and Christians who have been fighting certain sin, not just for months, but for years, uh, without apparent success. And that this morning as we come into church, that we almost have, when we have this feeling almost, of being bereft of hope. Well, Joshua 8 
has the most important lesson for you if you're in that situation, and it is that God is with you in the fight. God, your God, is with you in this fight. Now, we learn that in a a few ways. If you look at verse 1 with me, you'll see that we learn this in the theology. If you don't want to look at verse 1, you could look at verse 7, because the same reality is there. Have a look at it. It should, all these bells should be ringing in our minds here, because what does it say? God says he's given over. He's given AI over. Does that ring bells? Does that sound familiar? It must do. That was the big chief theological theme that we saw in chapter one. That in a sense, that there is no battle for Canaan. There is no great wrestling to conquer Canaan. That God has done this. God has decided. God has gone before his people and God goes with his people in the battle. So we see in the theology. I want you also to to notice that we see God's presence with us in the details. Because what did I say just a second ago? The kids will remember. I said that lots and lots of planning went into this, didn't I? Loads of planning. Now, a question to you. Who gives the plan? Where does the plan come from? Isn't that amazing? I love this. Verse 2. Who decides it? God decides that it was to be an ambush. God decides that. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it beautiful? Our God is the God who even provides the strategy for his people in how to tackle our spiritual enemy. So we see God's presence in the theology, yeah. The details, yes. But I want to focus God's presence through the symbol that's used. So I'll ask you a very important question. Have you been watching any of the Olympics We've seen, yeah, lots of nodding heads from the younger people. I know the viewing figures are down a little bit, so maybe you haven't been. I have not seen anything of the Olympics. I've not even seen a news clip of the uh, Olympics. But I am conscious that they're there and they're on. Well, maybe if you are a big Olympics fan, you're sitting here rubbing your hands thinking, this is a timely portion of scripture to read. And we can read about a javelin when during the Olympics, perhaps. Well, hopefully we all understand that this is not a sort of daily Thompson type thing or a Steve Backley thing. We know, what is this? This is a weapon. This is a sword, isn't it? This is a, a spear, this javelin. Now, if I was to ask you, what is Joshua to do with this javelin? How would you answer that question? What would you say? You might say that the javelin is to be used to signal to those warriors in the West. Is that how we would answer that? Is that what he's to do? I need you to appreciate and understand that is only half the story. Can everyone look with me to verse 26? Find verse 26, please. Now, what is he to do with the javelin? Do you see? Now, Joshua is to actually not just signal, verse 26, but that he is, do you see, stretched out the javelin until he's actually to hold this javelin up above his head for the full duration of this fight with AI. Did you see that? Did you notice that in the reading? It's to hold it up until all of the people of AI are are destroyed. Now, that might might seem a little bit odd to us, perhaps, but does a little bit of Old Testament background not fill in the blanks for us? If I say to you, 
Exodus 17, we might not get the reference, but I know that we know the story. No way. What happened? Moses. Do you remember it? Moses holding his hands aloft in battle. Do we recall that story? Do you remember it? Remember the details? The people of God down in the valley and they're fighting the Amalekites. And as long as Moses holds, not just his hands, but actually Moses has to hold his staff above his head. And as long as he holds it up there, the presence of God is with his people. God goes with it. The people are beating their enemies. But if Moses gets tired, Moses' hands come down a little bit, then the enemy comes strong again. Do you now begin to see the point in in, in, in chapter 8. If not, I just need to ask you, when Moses was up the hill, hands aloft, who was down in the valley leading the people in a battle? We know the answer, don't we? Moses is up there. Fighting the Amalekites was Joshua, the son of Nun. We see it now, don't we? What is God doing in this symbol, in this sign? God is assuring his servant Joshua of the same reality in the theology, in the details, and now in the symbol of the javelin. What does Joshua know in battle? As he fights his foe, he knows that God is his ever-present aid. And if you are in this room as a Christian, and you truly are at your wit's end and, 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 and dismayed, do you not need to? Listen to this. Learn from this. Do you need to not hold on to this reality? You need to understand your sanctification it's not your job alone. It's not you are left to this. God is completing your salvation. He is doing this, your sanctification, and he is doing it through you. And you see what that means, practical level. This week, as you go out to battle your besetting, indwelling sin, where do you look? You look first to God for strength. At that point of temptation to sin, that point of temptation, You look to God in prayer and you plead with him for his strength. At that point of temptation, you fight back with all you have. But you fight back with the word of God on your lips. Because it's not what we see in Joshua 8. Everything. Isn't it everything? Who is God? He is a refuge. Yes. He is a refuge and our strength. This week, you and I go out and we raise our javelins high. So we see the goodness of God. We see the toil for triumph. We see the strength for success. And then we close very briefly with the cursing of kings. The cursing of kings. Now, previously, I've said that um, this sermon series has been fractured and disjointed from both sides of the fence. Uh, But previously, you may have missed this, previously we have tried to address the accusations that the world would hurl like dirt at the book of Joshua. The accusations, the objections. And to be honest, frank about it, it may be that these are going through your minds just now and we don't know who's joining us online, so it could be the case there too. Thousands of people killed at AI, slaughtered. Is this not an example of how barbaric biblical Christianity is? Is this not an example of how atrocious all religion is? Thousands of people are killed at AI. Is this not an example of how bloodthirsty God, the God of the Bible, really is? Well, do you remember what we said previously? We said that we have to hold on to both of who 
these residents of AI are, and we've got to hold on to the fact of what God has already done. So can you remember, who are these people? They are not just bystanders here. We could read it that way. We mustn't read it that way. They don't just happen, these residents of AI, to be in the way. Who are they? They're Canaanites. Who are they? They are the avowed enemies of God. The enemies of all that is good and all that is right and all that is just. Enemies of all of that. Doesn't the Bible spell out for us their wickedness? Leviticus tells us, remember, of these people, these residents of AI, that they slaughtered their own children. They killed They sacrificed, in great numbers, their own kids. More than that, aren't we confronted in Leviticus by their immorality? These are the people engaged in stuff that I can't even talk about in here just now. That's who they are. And then, what has God done for these people? What do we know? God has warned them. And God has given them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years to turn away from that wickedness and turn to him. And if that is not enough, which it surely is, what do we learn in the book of Joshua with Rahab, the Canaanite? What do we learn? Even now, at the beginning of this chapter, if these residents of Ai had only turned back, only repented, looked to God from it, they would have been saved from all of this. Are you thinking, oh, poor bystanders? Not a bit of it. This is the justice of God. Hear it. This is an act of judgment from the good and right and fair and holy God. So previously, we've looked at that big picture. I, I don't know, but I think there's perhaps a further problem we have to deal with here. Because do we not have to deal with the apparently barbaric violence that is enacted towards the king of AI. Can I, as we close with this, can I ask you to please look and find verse 29? Have a look at verse 29. Now, what do they do? Is this not barbaric violence? There's the question. What do they do with this king? Now, we all understand, of course, that this king is the representative of AI. He's the representative of the people. Now, what do they do? So, so the king initially, do you see, is brought alive. So he, he survived the fight, and he's brought alive to Joshua. Next step, the king, the representative, is killed. And then you have this intriguing detail, don't you, that his body is hanged on a tree. So he's dead, in death, hung on this tree until the... So it's just for a few hours, it may be, He's hung on this tree until night falls. Now, hopefully, all of Scripture is going through your head just now, and you see what Joshua is doing. What's he doing? He's obeying the Deuteronomic Code, isn't he? He's obeying the Mosaic Law. So, we understand in Deuteronomy 21, you can look at this. Please look at this after the service. When you go home, Deuteronomy 21 we learn of a very special kind of death. Can I call it even a classification of death? Where if somebody has really sinned against God, that they face the wrath of God, and that in death, as they are killed, they are to be hung up on display in death. They are to be hung. It's very precise because it's so horrific, it's only for a few hours, cannot be overnight, and it's to be hung up on a tree. 
Why? We scratch our heads a little bit and maybe we say, yes, that's a deterrent. This cadaver, this body hung up in a tree is a deterrent. It's deterring anyone, wouldn't it? Yes, as an act of humiliation, of course. But also that body was to be hung up to signify that that person was forsaken by God, knew the cursing of God. And as you and I look into Joshua 8, and we're face to face this morning with this death of humiliation and utter cursing, do we not find ourselves, Christian friends, once again in awe of God's plan of salvation? Because what has God done for us? You know as you come in with the sin of the last week in your mind, you know as well as I do, we are no less guilty than the residents of AI. And for us, a king has died. For us, a king has died. How did he die? Was he strangled? Was he slaughtered? Was he hung, drawn, and, and quartered? No, the mystery of it, the King of kings, the Lord of glory, hung up in death on a tree on display. And we, we ask, how can this be, the mystery of this? Why has such a thing happened at the cross? And what would Paul tell us? That there he became a curse for us that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. Isn't it a miracle? Isn't it cause for rejoicing? The king of kings hung there in death on that cross because he was bearing the judgment for sin that we ourselves deserve, the judgment that you deserve, he bore it and was displayed. And so, Christian friend, I urge you, to the Christian I would say, do not lose sight of that this week. As you go out and you seek to fight with all you have, your indwelling, besetting sin, do not lose sight of the fact you're not trying to earn God's favor. You're not trying to earn your salvation in any way and do not lose sight of the fact that Christ hung there. That he has done it all. And how do we start? God whispers to you, do not be dismayed. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Christian friend, do not lose sight of that. But then to the unbelieving person. I would ask you sincerely to revisit Joshua chapter 8. After this service, this afternoon, revisit. Look long into this chapter. Stare at the king of Ai. And if you are unbelieving, see in him the fate of all those who continue in the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. See in the king of Ai the fate of all those who continue to rebel against God. See it plain as day in Joshua 8. And then run as fast as you can, in faith to Jesus Christ. Friends, let's praise God. Let's praise him for our king. And let's praise him 
for the death that brought us forgiveness and life. Friends, let's bow our